All right, page two. Anybody recognize this? This is a scene from Chernobyl. In 1986, the year I was born, in 1986, there was an explosion at this nuclear power plant in Ukraine. The officials immediately said, well, it was just a fuel tank that exploded, and it started this massive fire. The fire happened overnight, and so people in the community who were awake, they gathered on a nearby bridge to just view the amazing beauty of this fire at night and all of the ash. Firefighters rush to the scene, and they start putting out the fire. It's, it's a little difficult to put out, they realize. There's hundreds of firefighters. But within hours, several of them start becoming sick. They rush them to the hospital. They strip them of their firefighter suits, uniforms. Thank you, the firemen over here. They strip them of those, and they put them in in the hospital beds, and then they start caring for them. And, And dozens, within just weeks, dozens of those firefighters, they died. You see, it wasn't a fuel tank explosion. It was actually... The, the core of the reactor had exploded. And the fire that they were putting out wasn't just a roof fire from fuel. It was just a nuclear fallout that was happening. The nuclear fallout was massive. It affected about 100,000 square kilometers in that area. There's this enormous exclusion zone where they ushered everybody out because of the fallout of this, this event. The fallout was so big, there was this radiation cloud that came over Europe. They were, they were still, they're testing animals in far-off countries in Europe that still are contaminated by radiation from this event. But it's not just like a big geographical global ca- c- catastrophe. It's also a very personal tragedy. Um, HBO has recently put out a documentary about Chernobyl as well as a miniseries about Chernobyl. And... In these stories, they they tell the story of one firefighter who was married, and his beautiful wife came to visit him at the hospital. And she didn't fully understand the extent of what radiation might be waiting for her. And so she spent some time with her husband there. She came to visit him until he died in just a couple of weeks. But as it turned out, his wife was expecting a child. Um, The wife was mostly spared because the child in utero absorbed all of the radiation. And so when she gave birth, the child only survived a few days. And she was there now a widow and just struck with grief. The people that came out to the bridge that night, every one of them would be dead within about a year. There's just soaring cancer rates, especially with children. It's just the fallout of one event was devastating. Last week I introduced this series, The Mission of God. And we introduced kind of a a couple points I want to just come back to because some of you weren't here last week. We we looked at the story of God because the story of God reveals the mission of God. and, And in the beginning, in the creation stories of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what happens is that God commissions. He commissions. He sends us, but he, he sends us his partners. He commissions humanity to be, his, to be his partners, to be his missionaries, and fill in the earth with his blessing. 
the, the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 is the word image. We are created in his image. And we talked about how image doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean your soul. It doesn't mean your rationality. It doesn't mean your free will. Image of God is a way in the ancient world of talking about a, a ruling king who represents a deity. So he represents the deity on earth. So to be an image of God is to reflect his rule. It's to be commissioned to fill the earth with his blessing. We, we talked about four ways this shows up in Genesis 1 and 2. These are the, the core values of Oikos Church. The first way that it shows up to be the image of God is to be spirit-led. In other words, you image God. You don't image yourself. You're, you're a reflection of the true God who made you. And so you're supposed to imitate him and resemble God. The second part is about your identity. We talked about how because you're made in the image of God, you have inherent dignity and value. You are enormously, eternally special because of who made you and how he made you. There's dignity. There's a value there. The third piece is about family. We call it beloved family here at Oliver Creek. All right. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm, first time probably won't be the last time. You could even say at OC. No, let's not. Uh, scratch that from the record. Um, we talk about beloved family. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it says that he made image of God into male and female. And then he says, I want you to be fruitful, fill the earth. And so how do a man and a woman do that? Well, they do that through family, through marriage is what it looks like with Adam and Eve in chapter 2. And it looks like children. We were made to experience his earth, to fill the earth with his blessing through family. And then the fourth part, we, we call it here holistic ministry. And it's this idea of subduing and ruling. It says that he gave all creation to the care of humans. He says, let them rule over the fish and the birds and, and the animals. Let them rule over the world. So he gives us a task. And it basically, in Genesis 1-2, it looks like gardeners and shepherds. Gardeners and shepherds. This is the task that God has commissioned us to do, to fill the earth with his blessing through these, these pieces. But what happens when the reactor explodes in, in the story. We talked about how the story of God reveals the mission of God. And so what we're doing in, in the series is kind of pausing at different sections in the story in chronological order to show how this advances what God is doing in the world. And this week, the problems of the story, they focus the promises of the mission. Does that make sense? The problems, just like in any story, the, the tension, the plot is setting up the resolution. The problems are focusing the promises. And so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about problems today. And we're going to do it through the lens of fallout. Now, normally when we talk about Genesis chapter 3, we just call it the fall. But the fall makes it seem like everything is perfect and then they fell from it. But fallout, I think, more captures what was happening with this event in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, page 2 and 3, and we're going to answer this question. What is the fallout of failing to image God. What is the fallout of failing to image God? Before we get into the text, I want to just kind of summarize a definition of, of sin. We're going to be talking about the curse of sin, but sin's one of those words that only religious people seem to be using it today, and religious people have a long history of baggage with this word sin. You may not even like the word sin. I'm going to be using it some today, but can I just tell you how I understand this in a, in a biblical portrait? 
So in, in the scripture, sin is like a radioactive explosion that has fallout, where it's not just an event that happens. Actually, the Hebrew word for sin, it can refer to the event, the act, it can refer to the guilt that is carried, and it can refer to the consequence. It's all the same word. It's all the same idea. It's like radiation. Which one does it refer to? It's like, well, it's, it's all of those. You remember the, the firefighters who went into that scene, and then they took off their clothes, and they went to the hospital beds. Decades, three decades later, researchers went into that hospital, and they found the pile of fireman gear, and it is still deadly radioactive. It has nothing to do with the event anymore, but it still carries it with it. Does that make sense? That's this idea of sin in Scripture. So a few ways that, like Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, talks about it. In Romans chapter 6, he says that sin, he says its fruit is death. In other words, it's like a, a plant that grows up and it, here's death waiting for you. He, he says the end is death. The wages is death. It's the thing that waits on the other side. It's, it's the due payment for something. Um, in James, James chapter 1, he says that sin is planted, it conceives, it grows, and then it gives birth to sin and death. So sin, it's, it's not just an event. It's, it's the fallout of it all. It's not just one fall. It's, it's the lingering effects of it. I was reading a biblical theology of sin. It's called Missing the Mark by a scholar named Mark E. Biddle. He says, sin creates a real circumstance that lingers in the world until it comes to fruition. Does that make sense? It's still embedded. It's planted. It's waiting. The point at which the biblical view diverges most sharply, he says, from modern popular concepts of sin involves the idea of punishment for sin. Popular Christian thought envisions punishment for sin as an event discrete, separate from sin itself imposed on the sinner. The biblical viewpoint, on the other hand, views sin and its consequences in holistic, organic terms. In short, sin matures into a punishment quite naturally. Here's, here's what he's saying. That a sin naturally leads to death. It's like, if, if you start messing with radio, radioactive stuff, it leads to radiation poisoning naturally. It's not like somebody else came in and said, here's your sentence. Here's it's not an arbitrary, externally imposed thing. It's built into the act itself. Now, in Scripture, oftentimes God will basically fast forward the harvest. If sin is a fruit, at least that he can fast forward the harvest. But normally, in almost every occurrence of sin and punishment, punishment is in the thing itself. God gives us over to the things that we do and ask for. I think that's an important kind of frame for understanding what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Because we're going to see sin, but we're also going to see curse. And it can feel and look like the curse is somehow totally disconnected from the event. But no, God is giving us over to the thing that we have done in Genesis chapter 3. I'm hoping you're tracking. I, this is one of those weird ways where it's just me talking. So, I got a few nods. Okay. Great. <laughs> Great. So, what ends up happening is that that, that image of God is just distorted and totally flipped on its head. So, we talk about spirit-led. Instead of being spirit-led, in Genesis chapter 3, the event becomes serpent-led. 
So what I'm going to do is kind of look at chapter 3 and then really show you in chapter 3 through 11. Now, 3 through 11 is a long section of scripture with several genealogies. Um, it's, it's incredible, <laughs> but we don't have time to like dive in. So I'm just going to be kind of touching, touching along in Genesis 3 through 11. And the reason is because this front section of scripture, in 1 and 2, it gives us kind of the initial trajectory. And then 3 through 11 gives us the problem that the rest of the story is going to resolve. We'll talk more about that as we go on in the series. So how does the serpent show up in this story? This is chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent, this is his introduction. This is the first time he shows up on the scene. He's more crafty or wise than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? A little later, after the Lord shows up and he asks Adam and then he asks Eve what happened, this is her answer. The serpent deceived me. And then the consequence falls squarely initially on the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring, your children and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, what I think is happening here is far more than explaining my fear of snakes. Like, I'm, I'm totally down with Indiana Jones. Like, I can do a lot of things. Get me away from snakes. I, I, I think that's probably here in the story. Whenever I kill a snake, I feel like I'm doing God's work. It's like, <laughs> but this snake is not just, it's not just, it is a talking snake in page three of the Bible. But this snake seems to represent some kind of spiritual evil that's far bigger than, than the creature itself. The, the snake represents an evil. And the snake comes to represent what in chapter 4 is called the word sin. And so sin is lying in wait. It's crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Genesis 4, 7. It's talking to Cain in that time. But it says, but you must master it. You must rule over it. This is what is told to Cain. Sin is introduced. The serpent is connected to sin. The serpent in, in the storyline comes to embody the spiritual evil. In the book of the last book of the Bible, it'll talk about that serpent of old, the dragon, Satan. So spiritual evil becomes associated with this, this creature that is the serpent in, in the garden. But notice that the people are listening to it. We were designed to be images of God, which means we imitate God, we represent God, we reflect God, right? If I'm holding a mirror, you're supposed to be showing the world who God is. But instead, we've just smashed the mirror and we've exchanged the spirit for an evil spirit. We've exchanged the glory of God for, for this creature? This shows up in a couple of ways. You remember the word, the serpent deceived me. Deceived. If you just read through Genesis, it's 50 chapters, but it's really compelling. And almost every character, whether you think of them as good or bad, is an imitator of the snake. Beginning with Cain. Cain is the one who's deceiving and hiding. You see it even with Abraham. Remember when Abraham brings his wife into Egypt and he starts deceiving about who she is and his relationship to her. Isaac, his son, does the same thing. He's lying. Rebecca, she and Jacob are scheming and deceiving the father and they're tricking people. Jacob, his name means trickster. He's, he's constantly deceiving. And then Jacob's sons, the 12 sons, they deceive 
And then Joseph, in the last final act of Genesis, he deceives his brothers and he's playing tricks. Everyone is imitating the serpent. They're serpent-led. They're not spirit-led. But what happens when you image this? Um, G.K. Beale, in his book on idolatry, he says, we become what we worship. So when you start following after the lead of the serpent, it's going to have consequences. And the second consequence we see is it's not just a shift from spirit-led to serpent-led. It's a shift from renewed identity into a distorted identity. It changes who you are and who you're becoming. You, we become what we worship. And so if you're deceived by the serpent and, and you follow in his path, it's going to change your identity. That's his tactic, actually, in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, whenever he speaks, he speaks in lies. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He says he's incapable of telling the truth. He says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from the tree of life, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not the tree of life, the tree of knowing good and evil. He says, when you eat it, God's not telling the full truth here. And the serpent specializes in two forms of lies. Lies about God and lies about us. Lies about God and lies about us. Um, I realize I'm sounding like I'm saying Liza. Um, he, he twists things about who God is and if he can be trusted. He makes it seem like God is holding out the good stuff. And what you really need to do is define good and bad for yourself. Don't trust his definition of good and bad. He doesn't have what's good for you in mind. So you have to trust your definition of good and bad. This is still the main draw of modern identity, not just ancient identity. The main draw of modern identity is to redefine good and bad from the individual's experience. Rather than looking upward, we've talked about identity a good bit here already, but rather than looking upward, we look inward in, in the modern world to discover our identity. But this is a distortion because it plays off our desires and our desires can get disordered. When the woman, she saw that the fruit, she sees something beautiful and then She's going to take it. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. It's interesting here what the woman desires. She desires exactly what God wanted for her. He desired, she desires wisdom. She desires something. She desires food. She desires everything that God made, but she has disordered the desire. Does that make sense? Desire can be good. A desire can be for something good, but it can get twisted. In the New Testament, the writers talk about sin and desire in this relationship. They say that each one, when he sins, is drawn away and he's enticed by his own desire. Desire is at the, at the core of this decision to sin. Desire isn't itself a sin, it's when it gets disordered that it becomes sin. In 1 John 2, he talks about the desire, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That word lust is the word desire. It's a disorder. It's bigger than it should be. There's a church father. I've talked about him um, a good bit. His name's Augustine. And this is one of his kind of really central um, claims that he's making, that sin isn't a thing in itself, that evil isn't a thing in itself. It's a distortion of something good. It's an exchange for something good. And so he says, a just and holy person is a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he doesn't love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little what should be loved more. Does that make sense? This desire, this love, it's rightly ordered. 
But what happens when it gets disordered? He says, there's this joy and happiness that comes from rightly ordered loves. But then there's this other form of happiness. Those who think that there's another kind of happiness look for joy elsewhere, but theirs is not true joy. He's the guy who said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is Augustine. He says, there remain, their will remains drawn towards some image of the true joy. He says, we are worshiping beings and our hearts will love something. We will worship something. And when we worship ourselves, it has this cratering effect. It, a distorted identity is what flows out of this. Immediately in the narrative, this shows up. As soon as they do this decision, they start hiding from God. They realize they're naked. They start experiencing shame for the first time. I was thinking about even this morning as we were singing those songs of pain. And I was thinking of so many just in the room who you've let me in. And it is such an honor to be able to walk with you and to listen. But there's so many other stories of pain and of sin and of curse that I don't know. And part of the reason is because we, we just default to hiding. Is this, you know what I'm talking about? There's like an isolation that comes in with the pain. Not just grief and loss and brokenness, but, but our own sinfulness and our guilt. There's, there's an isolation that we, we take on. This immediately starts happening in the narrative. But the, the identity <laughs> continues this is the last line of, of the curse on the ground. And it says that you're going to have to eat plants all the days of your life. You know, there's no longer abundance in the garden. And it says you're going to return to dust because you are dust. And so these, these images, eternal glorious beings, have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We start worshiping and serving, Paul says, the creature rather than the creator. And so what does this do to us? One of my favorite sermons, it's by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Weight of Glory. It's, it's excellent from, I think, the 1930s. But he says, the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you should be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He says, there are no ordinary people you have never taught to a mere mortal. But it's immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You see, what happens with the image is that we retain the image. In Genesis 1 through 11, this language of image is still there in the genealogy of Adam in chapter 5. It's still there even after the flood, after the days of Noah. The image of God is still a part of every human creature. But it's not as good and glorious as it always was. It now has the capacity to be a nightmare. It's a distortion of identity. Okay, so the spirit-led is, is exchanged for serpent-led. The renewed identity is exchanged for a disordered or distorted identity. And then the beloved family is exchanged for a broken family. The broken family comes up in a lot of ways in chapter 3. 
One of those is quickly they start blaming one another. You remember this? That woman you gave me, she, she made me do this. And so there's, there's conflict in the marriage of Adam and Eve that was so good and beautiful in chapter 2. The paradigm for marriage is already disrupted. But it gets worse. To the woman, he said, now it's important to point out that the man and the woman are not cursed. The ground is cursed and the serpent is cursed, but they live in the consequences of their experiences. Do you remember how sin is the act and its consequence? They live in their sin now. He's given them to it. And so I will make, well, he makes it by giving us over to it. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Do you see how family gets immediately complicated? Now, this makes it sound like it's talking about pregnancy. And certainly, I have not personally experienced, but I've been near a couple of pregnancies and seen just the toll that it takes. I've, I've been in the operating room at a C-section where I, it, it was a life and death situation. And I know fear and I know loss and we know miscarriage. And you see, it's not just pregnancy here. It's that I'm going to multiply your suffering in childbearing. They have a word for pregnancy. They don't use it. Because I think this is meant to say all of it, all of the childbearing. Having children is also its own toll. You should talk to empty nesters about how their kids are doing. And you realize the burdens that even adult children can cause to their parents. You see, it's, it's not just a conception, and it's not just a pregnancy, it's not just labor, it's not just birth. It's having a family is really difficult now. It's broken. Not just children, but marriage. It says that your desire to the woman will be for your husband. The, the way that this same phrase is used in chapter 4 makes it seem like her desire is to like be in charge. But instead... She's going to default to like this manipulating that starts happening in, in the book of Genesis, where Sarah has some good ideas, right, about how to get a child, or Rebecca, or on and on, or Potiphar's wife. There, there are these people that show up later in the narrative that kind of help shape what this, I think, is looking like. But the response of the men is domination. And instead of serving and keeping, Instead of lifting up the woman with a love song, which is actually the first words in Scripture, they're not to God, they're to a woman. Instead of, instead of that being the picture of what it looks like to be a man, instead we, we have men that think it looks like ruling over women. It's, it's just broken. This is broken relationships. This is broken families. And it doesn't stop here, right? They have children. This... this the, the hope is in the offspring of the woman, but it doesn't go well. Here's the first son that's born. You remember Abel, and then his brother Cain. And, of course, it's a pretty broken family. One murders the other. Cain, then, after the death of his brother, it says that he lay with his wife, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Enoch. And then it goes through his family line. But in his family line, there's a man named Lamech, and Lamech married two women. Do you see how Genesis 3 is starting to take shape? There's an exploitation. What was designed to have one man and one woman now has one man and two women. And this pattern does not slow down in the book of Genesis. Even the so-called heroes of faith, 
if you go all the way down to Solomon, it's just exploitation and dominance. So Lamech is the line of Cain, and he's the first one to have multiple wives, but he's also a man of violence, just like his grandfather Cain. He's talking to his wives, and he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He's a man of violence, of, of dominance. But look at the next verse. But Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. This is the third birth in Scripture, and there's already a reference to the other one that got murdered. Do you see how broken this family is? It's like, it's not Cain's line. Cain's line is so messed up that it leads to polygamy and violence and vengeance. Seth? And so it begins to trace this line of Seth, and it says this family, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. And out of Seth's line comes Noah, but then we quickly discover in the genealogies that it, Seth's line is just as contaminated by the serpent as the other. Every family is broken, with no exceptions. Every family is broken. This is Adam's line, and then chapter 5. There's another genealogy in chapter 10 that shows every family is broken. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, fourth piece, last piece, and then I, I want to try to bring it home to 21st century. We're, we're mostly exploring Genesis 3 through 11, but I think we'll see a lot of resonance. We've seen several exchanges. The final exchange is for a holistic ministry of being gardeners and shepherds and ruling over creation. Instead of seeing holistic ministry, we see holistic sin. Sin. It's like, what would it look like? What would it look like if these people and their fallout, if they just brought all that contamination and radiation into their families? What would it look like poison? What would it look like if those people then started building culture and civilization and cities? It would be a mess, wouldn't it? Everything would be contaminated because of what they're bringing with them. And this is exactly what we see. The ground is cursed in chapter 3. Through painful toil, you'll eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You know, there's, there's work in chapter 2. Work is good. But now our experience of work is frustrating. It's tiresome. It's, it's not abundance. It's scarcity. It's, is there going to be enough food? It's, it's laboring just to survive every day of your life until you end up back in the ground. That's, that's Genesis 3. But then after the family of what we were just seeing, uh, where, where Cain's family line is highlighted in chapter 4, right in the center of it, it just drops this line. Cain was then building a city. And it says how he named it, and it says some of the culture that they started developing. They started developing instruments and metallurgy. It's like they start developing culture. City. The city comes from Cain. It's not good. It keeps going, though. His family line continued to be city builders. Nimrod, he's a great warrior. Um, what happened to that name? <laughs> it meant great warrior. Now it, it means Nimrod. Okay. So the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the Hebrew word for Babylon. 
These are city builders in the line of Cain. They're going to build Babylon. They built Nineveh and Cala. That's the great city. And so in Israel's text, it's explaining really where their persecutors come from. You want to know where Nineveh from Assyria came from? You know, the people who slaughtered all of your warriors and raped your women and murdered your children and burned your cities. And then they put fish hooks and they led you all the way into their land. You want to know where that came from? They came from people building cities. You want to know where Babylon came from? The book of Lamentations is a lament about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's because of the Babylonians. There's so much death and destruction and violence. You want to know where they came from? They came from people who built cities. You see, sin isn't just a personal event. Sin gets repeated and patterns start developing in systems. Not just family systems, although we see that start happening. They develop in these structures that are embedded in cities and kingdoms at large. Every part of it has the fallout from sin. It has this curse of the sin. The, the radiation poisoning is happening. And all of this builds into chapter 11, where the people, they all gather together and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the Lord says, this is only the beginning of what they're going to do. Babel is the Hebrew word for Babylon, and here they build Babylon. And Babylon becomes the type. It's not always Babylon. Sometimes it looks like Egypt. Sometimes it looks like Assyria. Sometimes it looks like Rome. Sometimes it looks like the United States. But everyone ends up living in the kingdoms of Babylon. This is the problem. Do you remember at the, at the beginning I said that the, the problems focus the promises of the mission of God? So... <laughs> If all of that is true, that we've made the exchange from spirit-led to serpent-led, and that exchange has went from a renewed good identity into a distorted identity, and it's changed us from a beloved family into a broken family, and then from holistic mystery to holistic sin, what does that leave for us? What does that mean about the mission? You're like, this is bad news. All you've said is, is bad. How does this involve us in a mission? No, I think a lot of times we pick up scripture or we come to church and we think that the mission of God is just about going to heaven one day. And so we just wait and wait and wait. We think it's about being here and worshiping like this is doing mission. We think it's just talking about Jesus to other people. But I think that what God is doing is he's bringing salvation to redeem everything that was broken. Which means that salvation, that discipleship is it's going to take those same categories and start reversing the curse. What this looks like then to be serpent-led is mean we have to rediscover our spirit-led capacity. That discipleship isn't just about making the decision for Jesus. It's about discovering the idols of your heart that, that are demanding your attention, that are demanding your allegiance. This introspective idol work is discipleship. But it's not just serpent life, right? The, the next one was about your identity. Your identity. There's so much damage that happens because of what's done to us and because of what we have done. I was looking at some of the, the kind of like best, I'm not a psychologist. We have one in the room. I'm not a therapist. We have many in the room. But I was reading some of like the best-selling introductions to things like trauma. And what they capture so resonates with the biblical story 
that it's hard to call it like innovative, <laughs> even though it may feel like it as you're reading it. But it's like, no, this is actually what Christians have believed for a very long time, and, and the Jews before them. Bessel van der Kolk, he has a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's about how trauma, he calls it, it implants. He says, we have overwhelming experiences that affect our innermost sensations and our relationships and our physical reality, the core of who we are. You want to know what a distorted identity looks like? He's describing it. It affects the core of who we are. We have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. It's also the imprint left by that experience on mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism manages to survive in the present. What's wild, though, is that sometimes these imprints happen. Um, I was, let's see. What's his first name? I, I should just like call on Candy here probably, but uh, Mark Woolen, he has another book called It Didn't Start With You. It Didn't Start With You. And what Woolen says, he's like, we need to understand that sometimes experiences happen with three generations in the same body. Imagine there's a, a woman who's pregnant with a daughter. The daughter already has every egg that she's going to have. So you have three generations that can be epigenetically implanted by a traumatic experience. It can alter who you are. It can alter the, the trajectory of your life. Two generations of the future without you even knowing about it. it in a genetic level, it changes you. It's, it's insane just what they're discovering, but it actually really resonates with this biblical picture of identity that starts happening. That identity, it says that we're so broken and distorted that actually part of discipleship is going to go do some mental health work. It's, it's not just spiritual work of discovering idols, it's mental health work, of, it's identity discovery, it's doing some work on ourselves to kind of discover some of these things that we've seen. What about beloved family? It's turned into this broken family. Um, Plass and Cofield, I've, I've quoted their book, The Relational Soul, before. They're like attachment theory counselors. And they say the quality and character of the programming we received early in life establishes a pattern of attachment that controls our relationships later in life. And so you can have a secure attachment or an insecure attachment based on events before you were two years old. And they say that's going to shape the trajectory of your life and your relationships forever. It's just... All of these things start impacting us. And so what we see is that, that families are inherently broken, and then they pass on that brokenness in ways that really resemble the last generation. One of my, uh, some of you are going to roll your eyes at this, but I, I, I like Alexander Campbell. Yeah. Who was that? Michael? Alexander Campbell lived in the 1800s. He started a unity movement in the United States that became the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, and the Churches of Christ. But Campbell was, he was really ahead of his time here. He says, the special characteristic vices of parents appear in their children as much as the color of their skin, their hair, or the contour of their faces. A disease in the moral constitution of a man is clearly transmissible as any physical taint if there be any truth in history, biography, or human observation. We just, we, Don, it was appropriate that you talked about family at the table and some of the ways that we inherit things. But 
what Wolin says in his book is that it didn't start with you. It's like, yeah, but it also didn't start with your mom and dad. It didn't start with their mom and dad. It didn't start with their mom. It's just the entire human experience is, is a demonstration of this. And I think this means that part of what it looks like to practice discipleship and to walk in the mission of God is to actually do some exploration of your family history. Have you ever heard somebody say that discipleship is doing like a genogram? But it totally is because of the way that sin and its fallout is transmissible. We inherit from other, other people. So genograms, genogram is where you just kind of map out your family history and your way of relating to each other and some of the baggage that you can identify so you can start dealing with it to the glory of God. A genogram has no interest in blame, one author says. It's only interested in showing you the hand you've been dealt. You can play it more effectively if you know what you're holding and what's holding on to you. What are you gripping? What has its grip on you? A genogram can help clarify that. It may not be your fault, but it may be your responsibility. It may not be your fault, but it may be your responsibility. But, of course, the Christian doctrine of sin is we've got plenty of fault to go along with it. So, it seems like everything in our family systems, everything in our personal systems, and then everything in a spiritual way is broken. Last piece, just to try to make it practical, is um, this exchange for holistic ministry to holistic sin. And so if the city builders and the kingdom builders are carrying the radioactive fallout into the places that they're building, then it seems like part of the mission of God is to go into Babylon and to begin to reverse the curse in big ways too. And that's exactly where the story of God goes in the future. You get under the nose of Pharaoh. You get a beacon of light in Babylon who's working for justice, who's, who's doing a social welfare program so that the poor people around the world can be fed. They're, they're doing justice in Egypt despite the way of the Egyptians and their gods. And of course, this just goes on and on throughout the story where the efforts of Babylon are constantly under attack um, by a faithful witness of quiet living people who plant gardens and raise families and worship the one true God. The, the people who care about justice for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the immigrant, they, they become this, this faithful remnant that the Lord uses to saturate the cities with holiness rather than sinfulness. So what I'm trying to do is kind of give a big picture look at what the mission of God is and the problems, the problems of the story focus the promises of God. And we'll get to some of those promises, right? We, we've got several more parts of the series, but I do want to just preview some of those promises that show up in chapter three and then, and then I'll be done. So in chapter 3, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, you are cursed above all creatures. And he says, I'm going to crush your head, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, and you, you will, like, snake bite his heel. But then, at the end of the garden scene, um, there's this line. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. It seems kind of like a random little aside. It's like he didn't like the fig leaves, I guess. He just wanted something else. Um, not modest enough. I think I heard that lesson. I don't think that's what's, what's happening here. 
And then it's, the very next thing is they're expelled from the garden, the flaming sword, the cherubim. You're not allowed in this presence of God because then what would you do if you had, you'd be in immortal horror, he says. So garments of skin. What is required to have garments of skin? A death. So Satan, he says, you're not going to surely die. You won't die. And in some ways, he was right. Because in the narrative, they don't die immediately. Instead, in his grace, the Lord kills something else in exchange for them. But the death of the animal is just not enough to let them back into the full presence of God. Because of the way sin functions. Sin implants the seed that then grows and gives birth to death. Sin is the nuclear fallout. It's radioactive. And it's still there. The death of an animal, it can do some things. It can require the death that was deserved by Adam and Eve. It can now be put on the animal, but it doesn't do anything with the fallout. And the fallout grows and it continues. And you know this. In the, in the story of God, they're exchanging animals for life constantly. Day of Atonement. It's, it's just Thanksgiving offerings. They're, they're, just, they're constantly killing animals because with every sin, a death is required. This is what sin leads to. But the death of an animal can't ever take it away. And so, what, the, what God does is that the true son of Adam, who's not Abel, and it's not Seth, and it's not Noah, it's not even Abraham, because every one of those people was so corrupt and part of those broken families. But the true son of Adam, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he comes into the story and he absorbs the death that was due Adam, the death that was actually due all of us. And in his death, he not only atones for the death that was required of sin, but he begins doing the work by his spirit that he pours out of removing the radioactivity of the curse. In himself and through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, he continues his work of filling the earth with his blessing. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But just the summary alone is enough to praise the name of Jesus. Jesus has exchanged his life for ours, but then he overpowered death with life. He overpowered sin with blessing. That's why we're here today. That's, that's why we celebrate him. But I know that some of us are still overwhelmed by curse and fallout. We live in this in-between time where we're waiting for the blessing to be as far as the curse is found. We know it's still in here. What do we do in those moments? The Lord Jesus Christ, he says to hope, I am coming soon, and I am making all things new. Can I offer a blessing for you as, as we go out? Um, after I say amen, would you go pick up your kids downstairs? Would you stand, please? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We praise the name of Jesus 
our King, who though sinless suffered for us, who though the creator of life died for us, who went to the cross and was raised, Father, overpower the sin in our lives. Fill up the holes of grief and pain with your love. Grow our hope as we await for the coming of the great day. Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.